Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You could describe his life as the rave scene, meeting the wolf of Wall Street, ending in the Shawshank Redemption. Mr. Sean Atwood! You've got an extreme story that involves wild man, a corpse on his doorstep, and a homicide detective. You're only as big as your numbers on this board for the month! Punch the board! Smiling brokers make the most money! So the guy comes back with the spaghetti bolognese, and wild man says, she's fucking moving in with me. So I would show up at like some south side ghetto in this twin turbo Mazda RX-7 straight out of Fast and Furious 1. So we're dancing in our seats all the way back and we sell those pills in the weekend Sean you're at crossroads in your life right now go up here be the top broker go down here it's gonna lead to hell <laughs> fucking show's hell in there <laughs> so if you run drugs through any part of Mexico whoever's the boss of the plaza has got to kick down and that includes the cops coming from another room so walk into the room Got a bunch of Mexicans he's giving orders to have got cattle problems. One call to Sammy the Bull and we can have you taken out to the desert. Bam, 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 bam. Tempe police, we've got a warrant. The English Sean, your big name from the rave scene, we finally fucking got you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Criminal Connection podcast. And today we've got a very special guest. Um, his name's Sean Atwood. He is the king of the podcast. But before that, you could describe his life as the rave scene, meeting the wolf of Wall Street, ending in the Shawshank Redemption. So please put your hands together for Mr. Sean Atwood. Oh, very kind of you, Terry. Appreciate that. It's good Cheers. to meet you, mate. You. Yes. It's good to meet you. I've been watching you for all these years. And uh, obviously back in the day, obviously we both shared that uh, rave scene connection. <laughs> Indeed. I've just finished your book. And there's so many parallels. The stories of the guys you were working with. Well, that's why I said to you, like, it's a good job we didn't meet each other back then. <laughs> I was 5,000 miles away, though, in Arizona. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But, you know, I've sold my story a thousand times, and I was thinking of an original way to start this one on the way here. Right. It's okay. If you've got an extreme story that involves wild man, a corpse on his doorstep, and a homicide detective tells me something about a serial killer... <laughs> So basically, me and Wildman end up in America, right? He's my childhood best mate. Right. He's a maniac. He's got red dots in his head telling him to hurt people from when he was a kid. <laughs> Picking up school teachers, putting them in rubbish bins. The school gets so scared of him, they got him outside, raking leaves with the caretaker. So he was called Wildman for a reason. So we made a goal. I was going to go to America and make a million in the stock market when I was a teenager. This was my goal. Right. fly him over and get him a job as a wrestler so we could channel, channel that violent energy into fighting Andre the Giant and the British Bulldog and Hulk Hogan. <laughs> this is how idealistic I was. So I go off to America, work for five years, start making decent money. He goes off to prison for five years, gets out when I'm making the decent money. So I fly him over, thinking, right, I'm going to get him a place to stay near the George and Dragon British pub, Central Phoenix, where he'll just have a Guinness with the expats and he won't get in any trouble. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, what goes wrong is, a few weeks later, me and my missus go over to his place and a bunch of Mexicans answer the door and we're like, where's Peter? And they're like, Peter? Peter? Shaking their heads at us, yeah, Peter, he lives here. Where's Peter? And they start displaying guns. So me and my girlfriend backtrack across the road. And Peter, a.k.a. Wildman, just springs across the road, all smiles. Like, what the hell's happened to your place, Peter? We just could have got shot. What's going on? And he's like, oh, they're the local crack dealers. They like to move around a lot. So I've rented my place to them. They're letting me stay in their place over the street and they're buzzing because I can do a $100 crack rock in one breath. And it goes, dingle, dingle, dingle. And it can't sizzle, sizzle, sizzle and calms down the red dots. And we were like, oh shit. It's like the guy at the back, he's from Colombia, he's running them and he wants to invest in the stock market. <laughs> Peter, Peter. Right, you so, say, as long as he gives me a copy of his passport <laughs> and his utility bill, we can take him on as a client. <laughs> 
<laughs> money laundering for the Cali cartel. <laughs> so three months in, right, by now he's took control of all the street people and people are in and out of his house. The homeless are in there. He's got <laughs> Navajo street walking sex workers, trans sex workers in there, um, gang bangers. This is what he was like. He would just invite everybody in and someone's cooking up crack in the kitchen. People are arm wrestling. So anyway, I get, I get, um, I'm at the office, stockbroker at the office, get a call from my aunt. Peter's place is headline news. There's yellow tape around it. Someone's been shot dead. You need to get your ass up there. He might be dead. So I shot up there and I saw the camera crews. I saw the police and everything. I had illegal substances in my car. So I, I took off. Anyway, I waited till later in the day and came back. And I came back and there was a bit of blood on the doorstep. And Peter's in his living room with a homicide detective. And the homicide detective is like, who are you? I don't know what's happened properly yet. He's like, who are you? Yeah, I rented this place for him. You know, I brought him over from England, etc. He's here with me, he's visiting. And after all that, I said to the homicide detective, what, you know, you must see some pretty horrific stuff in your time. What's the most, the darkest stuff you've come across? And he said, have you seen the news stories about the jogger, the female joggers, the heads popping up on Salt River, but there's a serial killer that's cutting their heads off. And he says, we've kind of got him. And I said, what do you mean you've kind of got him, the killer? And he said, well, we've got his a profile of his DNA. I said, well, how did you do that? And he said that the serial killer was skull fucking the head so hard that when he ejaculated into the skull, the semen was so deeply embedded when he threw the heads into the river, the water didn't wash it out. Wow. So when uh, this homicide detective left... I, I mean, how does he sleep at night? I mean, when you deal with people on that level, I mean, I mean, killing somebody's fucked up, but killing yeah. them and then doing that is even more fucked up. We've interviewed a lot of cops uh, who've gone after serial killers and stuff like that. I mean, the first thing the cops do is they throw them in into an autopsy. And some of the cops have been in dozens of autopsies and they're just they're broken in to just deal with all that. And it, a, lot of, a lot of dark humour. They have a lot of gallows humour. So what when, did he say? What was his comeback when, when he said that? Was there something funny he said about that? Or? No, he's just had a poker face. Right, so you just You know, like you like, see in, in the programmes, the homicide right. cop with the stone cold, looks like a grave digger face. Right. Just told it me matter-of-factly. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, the homicide detective goes. I suppose what you saw at the house was like nothing. It was just like an everyday occurrence. Oh, someone's been killed. There's a bit of blood, you know. Bit of blood on the doorstep. <laughs> So I said, after the homicide detective went, I said, Peter, what the hell happened? So he said, a couple came over to buy crack, a female and a male. The crack dealers had moved back over the street. So he said to the couple, they're back over the street. The woman went over the street to buy crack. The man stayed with Wildman. The man had a gun. Wildman said, I'm from England. We don't have guns. How do they work? The man said, this is how they work. The safety's on. Pulled the trigger and shot himself in the head right in front of a wild man and fell dead on the step. Wow. Yeah. He'd only been there for two or three months. I suppose the moral of the story is next time you do that, make sure the fucking safety's on. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) 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 Fucking hell. I suppose you won't be doing that again, will he? (laughs) He's dead. Wild man's dead as well, yeah. Wild man's dead as well? Yeah, yeah. Wow, what what happened to him? So... As you'll hear over the course of the story, 
his extreme drug consumption. Right. He had unlimited access to meth and crack, and he would just stay up uh, doing it for weeks on end without sleeping. He'd go on walkabouts, and he wouldn't even know where he'd been. All his feet would be blistered, and his shoes. He was hospitalized multiple times. This is the Sonoran Desert, almost 50 degrees, and he's going on walkabouts. He was in hospital at one point because he dehydrated his heart, had a problem, and he asked me to give him a disco biscuit. I thought he was going to pop it when he got out of the hospital, and he had all these monitors and things, you know, on him, and he popped it right away in the hospital. And so, dee, 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 dee. we all run off out of the hospital before he okay. busted us with all the drugs on us. Wow. Yeah, but he, he had no limits. Violence, um, he would fight anyone. When the red dots kicked in, one eyebrow would go straight up. Right. So I would know. Was he, he trying to give you the Roger Moore? <laughs> <laughs> I knew. His face looked completely... That's how Roger Moore in me. <laughs> His face looked completely calm. Right. But one eyebrow would go up. And that's when you knew it was going to go. When the red dots were kicking in, yeah. Right. We were at like a biker pool hall bar one time with striptease girls. And just shooting some pool. And a giant comes in. Not as big as Andre the Giant, but like as tall as him, but skinny. I didn't have that wrestler physique. But proper giant, you know, with the chin and the teeth. And and wild man checks this giant out walking in. And eyebrow goes straight up. I'm like, please, Peter, come on. We don't want mayhem in here. But I couldn't stop him. He'd been, he'd been up for, for days on crack and meth. And he just walks straight up to the giant and holds his hands out. What's your name? And blah, blah, blah. And then Peter goes, my name's Peter. And if I were you, I'd be in the circus, you fucking freak. And, <laughs> and he's, he won't let go of the giant's hand. Giant goes, what did you just say? <laughs> you fucking heard me. If I were you, I'd be in the circus, you fucking freak. And his eyes are just completely blood red from the drugs. And he's just staring at the giant like the devil. And the giant's just stirring down like this. And I'm thinking all hell's going to break loose. And it was like there was a Mexican standoff for a little bit. And then they just completely calmed down. The giant took us outside, made friends with us, and showed, <laughs> showed, showed us his car. He had a specially made seat that extended it to the back of his car. And he gave us his number and everything. We wanted to hang out, but we lost his number. <laughs> so, so, so America for you was like, like a crazy time. So... I'm the sensible one. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> That's what I always say to people. I'm the sensible one. <laughs> I'm the business studies student who got gangsteritis. Right. Well, man. Do you think it was his, he called it from him? You called it from him? I had social anxiety as a teenager. I was almost beat to death by some drunks right. when I was about 16. So I was too self-conscious to dance. Won't go up and talk to strangers. Ecstasy came around. Wildman became my, my rave partner. Wouldn't stop dancing and talking to people all night long. But even off that, with Wildman, he'd just walk into any pub, just go up to the biggest, meanest, craziest looking people and, and talk to them and, and have them laughing because his, his sense of humor was so wicked. So he was the door for me into that world. And when he did move to Arizona, after the place with the corpse on the doorstep, that, that was your derve, right? <laughs> <laughs> At that point, didn't you think, maybe I should fucking move back to England? <laughs> well, his, his, his stay doesn't last long. He gets deported multiple times, and I've got 
Mission Impossible style teams of people smuggling him in back in through Mexico and Canada. <laughs> the first time culminates with him being classified as a menace to society and banned from America for life by the judge. Wow. Well, I'll finish that. I'll finish that bit. <laughs> so he gets out of the, the place with the corpse on the doorstep, moves to a place on the west side with two girls from the drug community and a bouncer. He's like a Chippendale, long, long her, claiming he's gangster disciples. He's a tough guy. They say they're behind on the rent. I go up and sign the check, put him in there, get a call from the landlady the next day. Peter's been evicted. I said, why has he been evicted? He's beat his roommate up. Well, how do you know? What proof have you got that he's beat his roommate up? The roommate was seen in the middle of the night fleeing through the apartment complex with plasterboard powder all over his head and face. And there's multiple human head-sized holes in the walls. <laughs> so... Fortunately, he did that one so fast, I was able to stop the check. One of the women he was living with said her boyfriend was behind on a rent in Tempe, Arizona. I fixed that situation. He moved in there. This is his last place now on his first visit. This is the place where it's called Rancho Marietta, the complex. He's got Russian mafia coming in, Mexican mafia, um, striptease girls. It's just nonstop party central. And that is where I met the relevant people the dangerous people who I was able to connect with through Wildman to establish the criminal enterprise. Right. Yeah. And and was it a case of you just looked at it and thought, this stockbroking thing sounds good. I might be able to make a million, right? But if I do this, I'm going to get it a lot quicker. It'll be a lot more fun. Exactly. Right. That was exactly what was going through <laughs> my head. <laughs> Uh, there was a crossroads in my life. Um, there was a few situations that happened while I was still a stockbroker, but I'd already started to test the water with the ecstasy. So, so the Wolf of the Wall Street thing, the, yeah. the, that connection, what, was you like the Wolf of Arizona then? What you saw in Wolf of Wall Street in the 90s, we had in our office, drill sergeant type boss. Right. He would bring in some heavy hitters and give us this power sales meeting at six in the morning. They'd be chewing gum, they'd be on coke, punching the board, you're only as big as your numbers on this board for the month. Punch the board. Smiling brokers make the most money. Have mirrors on your desks. Pacing brokers make the most money. We had to have curly cords so we could pace back and forth up and down the office while we're trying to close the sales. If you're calling, if you're taking lunch breaks, other brokers are calling your clients. Oh, it was just like Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, they were getting coke delivered by hell's angels to the office the, bro the brokers and i thought this was the normal work world coming fresh out of uni right. any celebration there would be a striptease a limo full of striptease girls downstairs they take us off to the strip club so that was my introduction to the work I mean, world that, i mean the, there's no, the corporate world is nothing like that i mean you know uh anymore when, when, <laughs> it used to be like that yeah <laughs> before political correctness right yeah wow. I mean, I, I just imagine that's, I mean, you know, walking into an office and then you see a Hell's Angel walk in and you look, you look and you kind of go, well, what's, why is there a Hell's Angel? Oh, he's delivering the coat. Oh, okay. And then everyone's doing whatever they're doing. Then it's like, oh, it's like midday now. It's time to go downstairs. And you're like, well, what, what happens downstairs? Oh, there's a limousine with some strippers in. And you go, well, what happens then? Well, we go to the strip club. And it's just, it sounds so fucking crazy. Well, man brought a pimp up to the office. <laughs> so... He's met this girl, 
a striptease dancer who likes to taser her pussy. Taser? Taser her pussy. Why does she do that? All right. At Rancho Maria, a wild man was throwing a little after party. Right. And his party trick was always people taser me wherever you want. And it was like he was just getting his toes tickled. He, was, he would giggle. And that was his party trick. Or hit him in the face as hard as you want. That was his old party trick. So he's doing these things. People are tasing him. This um, black chick, she's got scars all over from S&M and all this stuff, walks up to him. Goes, That's nothing. I taser my pussy. And she's with a boyfriend as well, some bouncer guy. So we're like, Walma's like, well, are you going to demonstrate this? And um, she's like, I'm with him. And um, somehow they send him off to get spaghetti bolognese from the fucking kitchen or something. <laughs> Babe, can you go and get the spaghetti bolognese? I'm just tasering my pussy. Yeah, I'll be back in five minutes. He, he didn't know what she was about to do, but he went, he went off. She just, I said to everybody, look, here's what's going to happen right now. She's going to tase her vagina and give her the... Give her, give her, the, give her the audience she wants. So, so she, so did she, she's actually got a taser in a bag. No, wild man had a taser. It was his party trick. He was right, telling okay. everyone. So she, has anybody got a taser? Yeah, I've got one. <laughs> he was telling people to tase him. <laughs> that was his party trick. So she walks up to him while he's tasing himself and says, "That's that's nothing. I I can taser my I taser my pussy." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just sounds so, insane. It is insane. So. The, the boyfriend's not heard what's about to happen, so she sends him off to get spaghetti bolognese. <laughs> so, so she squats down, hikes her skirt up, she's got no nicks on, gets the taser, and you see the little electricity bolts lines right. just going up and down her female parts. And she's just like... <laughs> 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 and now this is love at first sight for Wild Man, seeing this. He's met, been on my life. He's met his match. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow. So the guy comes back with the spaghetti bolognese. And Wildman says, she's fucking moving in with me. <laughs> and um, thanks for the spaghetti bolognese. She's moving in with me. And Wildman and another big guy eventually went to her place to grab her clothes and she moved in that day. I mean, I mean I've mean, i heard of pickup lines, but that's probably one of the... Most outrageous chap lines I've ever read in my life. They, they end up like, You're well, moving in with me. We've got so much in common. You taser yourself, I taser myself. I mean, it's just... A... They go on the rampage like Bonnie and Clyde. They can't, they're unhousable now. Like, a SWAT team have been to the apartment. It's been destroyed. Hotels have been destroyed. They're living in Tempe Beach Park under a tree with a Rambo knife and a baseball bat. And... Some guys were coming down, beating up the homeless people, and wild man took care of that. So all the homeless were inhaling him as, as their king. He had this nice side to him as well. <laughs> and, um, they were going and getting meals and not paying. And then that's how he got arrested, and that was his first deportation. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't see him again for, them for, for years. <laughs> that's probably a good <laughs> thing, right? <laughs> but it, 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 it established me with the New Mexican Mafia. Right. And it established with me with people who um, later became my became the rave organization and the bouncers. So what? So 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 you he's left. You're now involved with these sort of criminal cartels. Yeah. Um, and then what? What happened next? Did you uh, did you start putting on actual events? Yeah. Um, so when I arrived in America in 1991, I was living off my student credit cards, and it was a race to make money before I had to fuck off home. <laughs> So five years in, I was at the top guy. 
grossing half a million in commission. I got my own secretary at this point, my own cold callers. That's when I flew Wild Man over. So I would show up at like some south side um, ghetto rave uh, place, some, some grubby um, warehouse in this twin turbo Mazda RX-7 straight out of Fast and Furious 1. <laughs> And then they'd be coming up to me. He would don't dump shit out, yeah. They started calling me the Bank of England. The ravers were calling me the Bank of England. Right. So then they started to come to me to invest in their ideas. Right. This is how it all began. Right. But over time, I incorporated them all into my criminal enterprise. So you, you was the original dragon, weren't you? You, you were the dragon on Dragon's Den before Dragon's Den even existed. <laughs> Incorporated them into the criminal enterprise. Um, Wildman left, when was that, 97? Things peaked around 2000, 2001. And the SWAT team came May 16, 2002. Yeah. And that was, I mean, what, what did you actually, I mean, did you know at any point that you was being looked at by the, by the law enforcement? Or oh, yeah. So we had um, a lawyer on the payroll. A lot of things happened over the years. So I started out just getting them locally, the ecstasy from a guy called Acid Joey. So I was at one of these little warehouse raves and there was a circle of people around this guy who was dancing. He was stocky, Navajo guy, but he was moving like his body was water. It was amazing. He should have been in music videos. thinking this guy's on some good stuff. So I waited till he walked outside, followed him and I'm like, I need some of what you're on. So he was able to get me like 50 to 100 pills from locally. Once while man was in Rancho Marietta, we decided to do an experiment whereby we bought 500 or 1,000 pills from LA because we were buying 50 to 100 through Acid Joey and they were going like that and people were saying, we want 100, we want to buy 100 at a time. So I thought, right, we need to find out Acid Joey, where they're getting from out, out of LA. Guy called Sol. So there was two car loads of us. <laughs> <laughs> there were two car loads of us. Um, all of them are dead now. Acid Joey, Seth, Wellman. Went out to this guy Saul's house in uh, West Hollywood. And he wasn't there. And Wellman's fuming. He's going to fucking go and kick his fucking door in and take his shit. We're like, Peter, calm down. If you do that, Robin, that's not going to be a good connection for us. Is it? That's, that's bad business. So we waited. Have you seen that movie, Point Break? Yeah, of course. So all these... Saul shows up with all these surfer gangster dudes. I've never seen surfer gangster dudes before in my entire life. And you fucking hell, they do exist. They all look like Ken out of uh, the Barbie movie. They've all got like surfboards. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the just, guns. Yeah, 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 yeah probably. <laughs> Serious guys. So I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to leave Peter out here. Otherwise, there's going to be a situation. So I, I went in on my own. I said, look, if I'm not out in 10 minutes, then fucking kick the door in. But I'm going to come out. So I'll go in and I said, can I taste one? It was a Mitsubishi and it, I tasted it. And he says, do you want a chaser with that? I said, no, I want to taste it properly. Cause I knew what good he tasted right. like from the UK scene, probably the pills you were involved in, like the white doves and things like that back in late eighties. Um, I tasted it, it tasted good, handed over the bills. He, he comes out with the biggest bag of pills I've ever seen in my life. Again, I'm in the twin turbo Mazda RX-7 now. It's got a first seat and I've just took ecstasy and I've got Renaissance on, DJ Sasha and Digweed. Right. Driving out of LA, about 20 minutes coming out and I start melting into the first seat. Right. Listening to Sasha and looking over at Peter. 
<laughs> just got that. We got back. We were so high by the time you we got back. You're saying to him, I love you. You're my best <laughs> yeah, mate. Yeah, 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 definitely. I'm so glad I brought you out <laughs> yes, here. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably something. We go back. Of... We go back. <laughs> we go way we're like back. brothers. <laughs> <laughs> so we're dancing in our seats all the way back, basically. <laughs> and um, we get back to Rancho Marietta and we sell those pills in the weekend. And that's when I make the fatal decision to quit working these long hours in the stock market. Now, I was still working the stock market and I was in the car park counting out the cash from the ecstasy sales. And my boss's secretary pulls in next to me and sees all the cash. And the next day I get called into the office and he says, Sean, you're at crossroads in your life right now. You can go up here, continue on your path of slow and steady progress and be the top broker and then his eyes widened it's like you can go down here it's like it's gonna lead to hell <laughs> I fucking chose hell didn't I <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah I quit 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 um quit that job and went full-time into this into throwing raves and bringing the ecstasy in when you was actually properly earning money yeah what would you be earning a week when you was at your height so the most money we earned was off the ecstasy and the biggest shipment we ever brought in this was when we had operations in mexico at the peak of it what happened was we lost a few people at airports in america right so we consulted a lawyer and the lawyer's like yes yeah, start bringing them in through mexico and we did it in um don't try this at home because this was before 9 11. people could actually put them just in pillowcases in their luggage back then really or if they wanted to be more secure screwed into computer towers Right. So one guy brought 40,000. That was the biggest shipment we ever had. Now, they were going for 25 to 30. So you can calculate the street value of that. But I wasn't making that. So say all my costs are like 2 to $3 a pill. Right. And I'm fronting them out to... I've got heads of factions. So I'm fronting them out to like heads of a faction. 5,000 pills for 9, 2,000 pills for 10, whatever What were they selling the pills for in America? 25 to 30. Dollars? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I'm getting them for two, three, with all my costs of flights and legal expenses and everything from Holland at the peak of it. They're bringing them in through Mexico. I've got heads of factions who I'm fronting them to. Say I'm fronting them to an average of 10. They've got middle people, 15, 20, 25, 30. That's how it was getting distributed. But even if I'm getting them at three, say, and I'm getting 10, seven profit on 40,000. Wow. It's still a, a chunk of change, isn't it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and um, yeah. when, you, when you was doing your, your rave parties, I mean, obviously, I know the raves in America were different to the raves in the UK in that, um, obviously, you can carry guns legally in America. So yeah. um, did you have any, any issues with any sort of uh, people trying to, like, take money off you or do you have any sort of... So we had the New Mexico Mafia protecting us. Right. And I can explain how that came about if you want, which kept people away from doing what you said. Right. So... Not to be confused with the cartel. When I ran operations through Mexico, we had to be okay with the fellas down there. That's cartel land, that's Mexico. Mexico's right. divided into what's called plazas. So if you run drugs through any part of Mexico, whoever's the boss of the plaza, you got to kick down. And that includes the cops. The right. cops are in, in the mix. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so Mexico, the whole place is... When any of our people got arrested <laughs> in Mexico, it was just a matter of 
paying much? the cops and getting them out. Yeah, right. yeah. So the New Mexican Mafia is completely different from the cartel. The New Mexican Mafia was established as a prison gang, a California prison, uh, Arizona prison, New Mexico. These states are all next to each other. So it was classified as originally as a, as a prison gang that crossed over onto the streets into murder for hire. In Arizona, they tried to assassinate the head of the Department of Corrections, judges, cops, witnesses, everything. Wow. I didn't know I was in bed with these guys until some of the principals got arrested. But when I first was in bed with them, what happened was I'm at a, a party with Rancho Maria again with Peter. And there's a guy called G-Dog. He's like a ruggedly handsome Mexican-American guy. And he's providing the coke and the meth and the weed. And I'm providing the ecstasy. So we get talking. People just chilling out, smoking weed, listening to rave music. And a cop walks in. And he's like, nobody move. I can smell weed from outside, nobody move. And he's going to radio in and have us all arrested. G-Dog just whips out his gun, says the only one who's not leaving is you, motherfucker. Everybody run. I absolutely shit myself at this point. I've never seen anything this heavy before in my life. By now, in Rancho Marietta, we've got multiple apartments we're operating out of. So there's one that's got Seth and Fish in it. Um, I go over to that apartment because everyone's run off into the night. Like, what are we going to do? Are the cops going to come? Should we flush our shit? We're all crapping ourselves, thinking the cops are going to knock the door down any minute because of what just happened over there. Then, bam, 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 on the French window. And it's G-Dog. He's like, let me in. And he totally schools us. He's like, turn the TV off. Turn the lights off. Don't say anything. If they knock, they can't get a warrant that fast. Everyone just shut the fuck up and try and stay calm. Because we weren't staying calm. We were crapping it. Um, Fish was almost crying because um, his name was on the lease. Right. And we had loads of... <laughs> We had loads of drugs. So what happens was the cops... Lo loads of drugs and a dead cop. <laughs> Your name's on the lease. I mean, you are going to be worried, right? <laughs> oh, he didn't shoot the cop. He, uh, just, he, just but, he just held the cop. Oh, that was nice that he did... Yeah, it was yeah. nice that he didn't kill him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, 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 <laughs> he held the cop while everyone escaped. Right. Yeah. So the cops knock on the door. We don't answer. The cops go on their way, but the heat's on now for G-Dog. And I've got all these friends who are harboring him. So at the end of the night, when we finished harboring him, I said, it's, it's hot for you in this area. Let's go over to a property I've got in Phoenix and shoot some pool. And, you know, you'll be safer over there. And that's what I did. I took him to my house right. and we shot pool, did some lines of meth. And he said to me at the end of it, because you and your friends protected me, me and my brothers have got your back. I had no idea what that meant. And this, is, this next scene was portrayed in my Banged Up Abroad episode. So a few months later, he says, one of my brothers wants to meet you. So I go over to the house, and there's all those lowrider showcase cars on the road. And his brother answers the door, little guy, bald hair, and he's got a mean face, and he's looking up at me, totally checking me out, you know, as if, who the fuck have you brought to my house kind of thing. And um, he hears my English accent, and he's like, damn, you talk funny. I guess you must be from England. Come in and meet my homies. Like, I'd pass some test. <laughs> so I walk into the living room, and there's all these massive tattooed Mexican-American gang members, wife beater vests on, shorts, you know, below the knees, uh, the chains. And they're all looking at me like they want to fucking eat me. Like, I'm so out of place. Uh, so again, I'm shitting myself. Fucking hell, look at this. One of them swings a spoonful of coke into my face. It's not this. G-Dog's like, yeah, snort it. 
And I later found out the guy that, that swung the coke in my face, wild man, had a relationship later on. He was a hitman who was on a spree at that point. Right. But I didn't know it at the time. And um, snort, snort the coat, the brother, oh yeah, I'm looking around the room. So they got the weighing apparatus, they got guns, slabs of meth, slabs of coke, biggest TV I've ever seen in my life. They got a little TV showing all the comings and goings on the road so they don't get caught by surprise. I did a double take. That's not a fucking ornament on the TV. I've seen one of them before. Oh yeah, it was in a Rambo movie. Rocket propelled grenade launch on top of the TV. I mean, that is just mad, isn't it? Yeah, every time I went to that house, I mean, I was in business with him for a couple of years and every time I went to that house, there was a lethal atmosphere and I always wanted to get out of there fast. Now, G-Dog also introduced me to another guy who was an older Mexican-American guy with, with silver swept back hair. I met him at one of these house parties as well with Wild Man. This is when I'm still a stockbroker. I get a call at the office and it's, it's Fish. And Fish is like, can you grab Wildman and Seth? Something's happened and he just come over here as soon as possible. And I'm thinking, oh shit, what's happened, Fish? And he says, I'd rather not say over the phone. I go to correct, collect Wildman and Seth and they're out collecting crack debts for the Colombian guy who was running the Mexicans. So I couldn't find them. By the time I get to Tempe, Fish answers the door of his girlfriend. This is 30 minutes late. His girlfriend's crying. And I'm thinking, oh no. You know, she might have been assaulted, sexually assaulted, and they want Wildman to do the guy in or something. I'm thinking, shit. So I'm like, what's the matter? And neither of them can say anything. So I hear this noise. Coming from another room. What the fuck's that? She's like, you best go look. So I walk into the room, and the older Mexican-American guy with the silver swept back stately hair, he's got a bunch of Mexicans he's giving orders to have got cattle prods. They've got a naked hogtied man on the floor with a rockabilly quiff. And when he says something in Spanish to them, they all electrocute the guy. His eyes almost pop out of his head. Piss shoots out of his dick all over the floor. And he's rocking like this and he's trying to scream, but he's gagged. So, you know, it's all muffled. Again, I'm not a gangster, you know, I'm a, I'm a stockbroker gone wild. This is terrifying for me thinking, what the fuck? But I can't show my fear because if these guys think this is a problem, I'm going to be a problem to them next. So I put a smile on my face, a forced smile, because this guy with the silver hair, he's, he's like kind of welcome to the family smile on his face looking at me. So I put a smile on. For a minute, you know, when you was telling me about that noise, yeah, I thought you was going to say you walked into him and wild man's girlfriend was in there. <laughs> Doing that, but seeing that, that must have been shocking to actually yeah, see that. Was. And like you said, mm. anybody listening or watching this will go, why the fuck, you know, why don't you just run out of there? But obviously when you're in that situation and you're with those people, like you said, you have to smile, you have to be part of it, you, have to, you can't show that you disagree with it or you agree with it, you just have to go along with whatever's going on. Yeah. So you become part of... With me, I did a lot of meth and I did a lot of GHB and it gave me false bravado. So it made it easy then for me to put on that I was a bit crazy. Right. Even though once I was off the drugs, I was back to that shy, anxious person. Right. So it was like this split personality. So anyway, that was heavy enough for me to be shitting myself. I'm looking at him and I say, it looks like you've got the situation under control. I'll tell wild man that you've got it under control, but I've got to get back to the office. Right. So I walk out then, thinking, I just want to get out of here. I'll never forget it. And then 
Fish and his girlfriend are still at the door. So I said to them, what the hell happened? And Fish said, well, as you know, I'm selling drugs for you. I'm selling drugs for them. That guy on the floor is one of my customers. He watched the place, came back, broke in. He robbed your drugs. He robbed their drugs. I called you. I called them. And they got here first. And then he said that, um, no, I was worried of going back to the office that they were going to kill him. But what I found out later on from Fish was they called his roommates and the guy on the floor's roommates and said 10 grand or he's going out to the desert and the money was paid. Wow. Yeah. And it was through Wildman that I got in this relationship with these heavy duty characters who people knew had my back. Right. To answer your question, people weren't pulling guns on me because they knew these guys were heavy. Even when Sammy the Bull's son was talking shit about us in Towers Jail in front of G-Dog, G-Dog heard it and said to Sammy the Bull's son that he was with the English family and not to talk shit. And then Sammy the Bull's son knew who had our back. Right. Yeah. I'm surprised they said that he clocked you were from England. Normally in America, they always think we're from Australia. Oh, yeah, yeah. They always go, you from Australia? You're like, no. (laughs) Totally, totally. So when I arrived from Witness Cheshire, shout out to Witness Cheshire, Witness Massive, and I was talking to the Americans in my Witnessian voice, fish, chips and peas, love, salt and vinegar. They couldn't understand the word I was saying. Right. I had to change my voice so they would stop saying to me, are you from Australia? <laughs> and that's why I speak like I do now. They go, good day, mate. And you're like, I'm not from Australia. <laughs> when I got back to Witness after, in 2007, when I was deported, I went to a fish and chip shop by curry and rice and I couldn't understand what they were saying they had to bring someone <laughs> out from the, they had to bring someone out from the back talking to me very slowly like I was a mental patient just out of the asylum which what I, I pretty do you much want was. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. so so obviously you went through this whole crazy thing and uh, what, what, when when did it when did you have your day of reckoning was that in 2002 May 16th 2002 right so, a lot of things had happened before then. Sammy the Bull Gravano's enterprise had been started, and we've just done a documentary that's going out on a big network with him and his family. Um, it's going out this summer about that. And they lit the scene up. So all of a sudden, this scene I've got locked down, there's these big steroid head jock characters with the leopard print polyester shirts and the muscles popping out of them, stepping on our toes. Right. I'm like, who are these people? Where are they coming from? I had no idea this was linked to Gravano. So at the time, I was onto my third this wife. This is when he was in the Gambino crime family? No, this was after. Right. He'd gone into witness protection right. in Tempe, Arizona, and ended up... Sammy the Bull Gravano was not running the ecstasy ring. It was his son that got him in the mix, because his right. son clicked up with a guy called Mike Papa, and Mike Papa was running this ring. And then the feds and the state police said... Sammy's in the mix, we can put him at the top, and it was a big case for them. Wow. But actually, Sammy only got caught with some very minor things, and one was he was talking to his son Gerard on the phone about giving him some money for gas, and that was Cove for putting money into the ecstasy business. Wow. So it was more of a mentorship role. The son was running, knew what was going on in the so street. So even when he's in the witness protection program, it's like that scene in The Sopranos, every time he chose to go back out there, put him back in. <laughs> Give him his due. He said, I'm not going to go on some farm in Montana with a fake beard and hide out for the rest of my life. Why? If they're coming for me, I'm fucking ready. My house is booby-trapped. I've got a few surprises for them. So he's got big cojones. Wow. Yeah. So these guys appear on the scene 
And um, I'm thinking about these guys, you know, that are stepping on our business toes. And I've got, I'm on to my third wife at the, at the time. So this woman, she was a university graduate, but she was doing lesbian internet porn when I met her. She actually joined the strip club because she fancied one of the strippers just to try and, she became a worker though, just to try and seduce this woman and get in a relationship with her, which she did. Hats off, off, her, off her for that. <laughs> she was as wild as me, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, but she had another lesbian lover whose boyfriend was one of these new types of XC dealers. So through the women, a sit down was brokered at a bar in Tucson, Arizona called Heart Five. Now, I don't know who these people are, so I've got my own security team, but I only took one of my bouncers with me, one of the Rosetti brothers. He was strapped. I said, look, Rob, if these guys snatch me, just open up on the motherfuckers. I don't want to be taken out to the desert, blah, blah, blah. So me and my wife going first. We're on a lot of drugs. I've done the GHB again. I've done some meth. Uh, my wife's took way too much GHB. She ends up getting carried out unconscious. Uh, Rosetti slips in behind us with the gun, and I go in, and ask for the guys, and two guys come up to me. So there's a short, stocky guy called the Spaniard. I have to change everybody's names for legal reasons. And there's a big guy, like six and a half foot bodybuilder guy. And they take me through into this like VIP room, and they tell everybody to fuck off and get off the get off the sofa and all that. You know, just flexing a bit there. So I'm thinking, right, I'm gonna have to act crazy in this situation because otherwise they're gonna think I'm a pussy. Right. These guys are, you know, flexing in front of me. Are what big badasses they are, telling me I want to get the fuck out of the room. And I've got the GHB hitting me. I've got the meth hitting me. And I remembered what my grandfather used to do to me when I was a kid. When he walked past me on the sofa, he'd, he'd, grab, he'd grab my knee, he'd grab me above the knee, and make me jump. So as I'm sitting down, then the son, they're both sitting down on the sofa next to me. I just grabbed both the knees, went fuck off like that. So um, the Spaniard was very cordial. And he's like, English Sean, we know you've been established for a while. You've got a lot of connections with the locals. You've got a lot of distribution. Why don't you start working with us? And I said, look, I'm getting a good quality product from Holland. I've got a good reputation. We were cognizant that if you're bringing that much in, someone could die. I know you, in your book you mentioned the Leah Betts situation. Right. There was a website called Dance Safe. I don't know if you're familiar with it. But they tested all the pills for you. You could send them in. This was in America? Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah, back then. Um, I think this, still, this might still be up. Um, so we bought ecstasy testing kits from the website Dance Safe. And we sent our smugglers to Holland with the testing kits before they did the bulk purchases. It goes like purple, blue uh, in the kit. Good pill, 100, 125 milligrams of MDMA. So I had a reputation to protect. And they're selling these colored pills. Colour pills could just be food, po uh, food colouring, poison, food colouring. Right. But there's often uh, the coloured pills had, had a, not a, such a good reputation in America. I don't know how it was here because I wasn't here during those years. So I said that to them and the big six and a half foot guy jumps off the sofa. Who the F do you think you are disrespecting our pills? One call to Sammy the Bull and we can have you taken out to the desert. So I don't know if he's just blowharding or if this is legit. So the Spaniard says to him, I'm sorry, Sean, my partner's a bit of a hothead. Sit down, blah, blah, blah. And I say to them, look, it's not each other we need to worry about. I can't get enough to meet demand. We can coexist. But since you guys came in the raves and the clubs, 
bragging that you're the biggest ecstasy barons in the world and just putting it out there. We've got the undercover cops checking all our stuff out. We've got undercover cops in cars filming people's license plates, filming people going in and out the raves, pretending to be people from out of state, trying to set up deals. All this started when you guys came into the scene. It's not each other we've got to be worried about. It's the feds. So the meeting uh, finished on a polite note with the Spaniard. And then I said to Rosetti on the way out, we were carrying my wife out. She's overdosed on GHB. Um, they threw out the name Sammy the Bull. Now, he knew Sammy the Bull because it was all over the news. The underboss of the Gambino crime family murdered almost two dozen people. So this is a formidable character, but we didn't know whether it was legit or not. But what happened was my top ecstasy sales guy, Skinner, he got lured into a nightclub in Scottsdale by a different faction of the Gravanos under the pretenses of they were going to buy some pills. They knocked his chief out, took his gun, took his money, and took his pills. And that's when I moved then from Phoenix, Arizona, to a house on a mountain in a gated, guarded, secure neighborhood. Because my thing was, I've got a protective shield. And that is all the people who work directly under me, the heads of the factions, wild man, wild woman, Skinner. Once that shield gets penetrated, I'm next. So that's when I moved to this this house on the side of the mountain. Yeah. Um, Wildman came back, adding fuel to the fire. So Wildman in the UK, I wasn't allowed to say this before he died because he didn't want to get in trouble for it. Right. But what he'd done was a big fella had been picking on his brother in a pub in Witness, and he took the big fella outside and curb checked him right. and literally put him in a coma, just destroyed right. his skull. So he had to leave the country in a hurry. And he came back to America. And my top ecstasy salesperson, Skinner, whose teeth those guys knocked out, he was like little brother. Me and him were that, like all the time together. Yeah. And when Wildman came over, I was hanging out with Wildman more than Skinner. Right. And that these are the little things that can bring a whole organization down, the, the jealousies. And so Skinner, he was smoking embalming fluid, Sherm and crack and meth and getting more paranoid. What, what, what's embalming? I've never even heard of that. People smoke that. Like PCP kind of stuff. Wow. Yeah, Sherm it was called. Right. Then on these sticks. So he's, he's smoking that, crack and meth and losing his mind. I've led a sheltered <laughs> life. <laughs> and wild man's doing something similar but without the embalming fluid. He's on, he's on, on crack and um, meth. And Skinner thinks Wildman's scheming against him because he's getting paranoid. Right. So he strikes first. Now, I've flown over Wild Woman, who's a mad female scouser, who's Wildman's long-term partner. And she's as tough as him. Was he still with the, with the, with the, with the mad woman that liked tasering herself? No. that oh, was she's gone. Throughout all this, Wildman was with Wild Woman. But when he came to America the first time, right. he got together with with the taser girl. Taser lady. Yes, <laughs> yes. But he was, he, that was, he told Wild Woman he went to, he was going to the shop to get some, and he jumped on a plane to America and then ended up with the taser girl. <laughs> so she was cognizant of that. So she, she was like always giving him shit over that. In fact, the cops on some of the surveillance saw Wild Woman chasing Wild Man down the street with a giant fan trying to smash his head in. <laughs> some, like I said, some of them were more scared of her than him. But that, but literally when, when Sammy the Bull 
when those guys then st- basically started stepping on your territory, throwing the weight around, that's yeah. when the heat came on you, yeah. on everybody. Right. They brought police heat, plus they brought the heat of being competition. So now Wildman's come because he's my back and he's a maniac. And those, the Gravano people are scared of him. But it was an internal struggle that brought us down because Skinner now strikes first. He plans a firebomb attack on Wild Woman's apartment. And Skinner's been interviewed for this documentary that we got coming out next year as well for the first time. So firebomb comes through Wild Woman's window, just misses her, like almost sets fire to her. She's got a mark on her face. And these Southside gangsters show up and say, look, we're with you guys. We're part of what Sean's doing. Grab your pills and get in the car. We'll take you to safety. She's like, gee, do I look like fucking chopped liver to you? Do I look like I've just fucking got in and I'm fucking thick? I'm gonna get in a fucking car with strangers in the, in the Scouse accent. And they're like, they don't know what to make of this. The wild woman. So they just bugger off. And um, we found out later on that Skinner had, had planned the whole thing and they were gonna jack her pills and he was gonna resell the pills and just keep the money and split it with these Southside gangsters. Wow. So when Wildman found that out, he was in a deportation prison at the time. And he's like, Sean, get me out of prison now. I'm not having someone firebomb my woman. So we expedited his release back to America, smuggled him back in through Mexico or Canada. Can't remember, there were so many times. How did he get back in? Was it through a tunnel or was it on a boat? Or? <laughs> there were so many times, Terry. Right. Um, there was, a, there was a, I had to send someone to Canada once for him and he brought him in over the Canadian border and then he got the Greyhound bus from the east side of America all the way over to the west side, which took days. That must have been fucking boring. The thing that made him so mad about that journey was when he got off the bus to buy beer and sometimes he would come back to the bus stop and the bus was gone. <laughs> You can't make it up, can you? <laughs> you get a phone call then. Fucking bus is gone. Yeah, but you just have to wait for the next one. <laughs> so, so he comes back and Wildman right away is just set on murdering Skinner. And I'm saying, Peter, we're not, we don't take it to the homicide level. We're just ravers. It's a peace-loving community. This is a death penalty state. If you take it to homicide, we're going to have homicide cops all over us. That's next level. Don't kill Skinner, but he won't listen. Right. Skinner's caught wind of this and gone to the cops. Wow. Cops already had 10 informants on us, wow. but they didn't know shit. Some of them were from the Gravanos and they just made shit up to try and get their stuff reduced. Right. But Skinner knew the complete inside. Skinner left the state. We didn't know he'd left the state. Wildman tracked down where Skinner lived. Now there's a guy who worked for me called Joey Crack. And later on, when the Italian mafia take over my building in Towers Jail, and move Joey Crack in as my cellmate. Every night, Joey Crack's telling me and these Italian mafia guys wild man stories every night and just brilliant stuff. Anyway, so Joey Crack tells us this one story. He's going over to Skinner's one day, because he doesn't know Skinner's dipped the sin and left either. And he walks into Skinner's and just wild man's big hand just grabs him. When wild man died, he was six foot two and 29 half style. Wow. Not a muscular guy, he had the physique of a burr. Big belly and butt, big, just just giant. They called him El Oso de Burr in Mexico because of his fighting style, just left fist. 
So this big hand just grabs <laughs> crack, Joey Crack. And it's crushing his neck. And, and Crack's like, well, man, it's me. It's Crack. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. It's me. And he said he looked in Peter's face. Again, just completely blood red eyes. He's been up for weeks on, on meth and crack. Sweat just running all down his face. And he said when he dropped him, he said, oh, crack, yeah, crack, crack. He said when he dropped him, Joey Crack looked around the room and Wildman had every weapon and torture device laid out. Hammers, golf clubs, baseball bat, knives, just for the, waiting for the arrival of Skinner. Yeah. So that was one of the things. Did he, get, did he get catch up with him or not? No, because he'd left the state. Skinner oh, had left the state. Thank God for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank God for that, definitely. That was one of the situations that um, brought heat on. And then Wild Man and Wild Woman were then so hot, we had to send them to Mexico. And my friend said, if Wild Man and Wild Woman, collectively we call them the Wild Ones, <laughs> behaved in Mexico like they did in Arizona, the Mexicans would kill them. They went down to Mexico, and when I went to visit them, well, they blew the first house up. But after that, they were all good. Um, the first house, right? The, they were a bit incommunicado down there. There wasn't much tech. So I sent one of my right-hand guys down there, Cody Bates, he's dead as well, to house them in a lovely property. First day they got there, they move in, leaves them with some cash. He comes back to Arizona. And then I send him back a couple of weeks later with some provisions and for some more money. And he comes back with a scared look on his face. The Mexicans have killed him. The entire house is burnt down. I'm like, no, the wild ones are indestructible. This cannot be. So I had a, um, he was a Mexican-American military, ex-military sniper. What we call him, Frankie Flowers or Tommy Tulips or something. I love uh, all these names, they're great. <laughs> so I sent him down there because he spoke the language. And he located them. And he's like, Sean, don't worry, the wild ones are still alive. Here's what happened. First day they get in there, they have a fight because they were always fighting. Their relationship was based on domestic violence. Right. And they stopped for a smoke break. And because during the fight, they did hit a gas pipe. When they stopped for the smoke break, they saw a blue carpet of flame just enter the room and start to engulf the room. Wild man grabbed wild woman. And as they run out the building, the windows blow up and everything. Wow. And they didn't have the highest tech fire engines either. Is this like thing from Bill and Ben comes? Oh, and they, got, they do that. They? <laughs> yeah. Hence, <laughs> hence it burnt to the ground, the wow. property. Wow. Yeah. So they're down there. I get them another property. And, um, but when I went down to visit them, cartel guys are, are running them around in military jeeps. Wow. They've paid everybody off. They've paid with ecstasy and with acid. They've paid everybody off. And the, the, the Mexicans, they didn't have access to that. So that was unique for them. There was a situation when I had a large quantity of pills coming in. I think it was the 40,000 that was coming in. Where Wildman had been sold a $10 crack rock. And I'm telling everyone to just chill out, lay low. Don't attract any police heat. And he, we get back to the condominium. Wildman gets his crack rock out, tries to smoke it. It was fake. Nobody rips me off. I'm, take me back, Sean. Take me back to the strip. I'm like, Peter, we've got 40,000 pills coming in. I don't care whether it's 100,000 or 
Nobody fucking rips me off. He's going mental. If you don't take me back, I'm just going to go up there and kill him. So I, I'm in an SUV, right? And he sees the guy and there's, it's a busy strip. There's cops on both sides. And I'm thinking, right, Peter, I'm just going to let you out near the guy and you're just going to fucking do whatever you're going to do. And I'm not going to be there. I'm just going to go. And if you get arrested, we'll bail you out. Oh, I promise I'm not going to do anything, blah, blah, blah. As soon as we're driving past the guy, he uses the motion of the car and the door to just jump out and fucking sandwich this guy in between like a, a bus stop pole or something and knock him out instantly. And I just leave him there and drive off. And the cops just turn around. I think he's, he's, he's going to jail, definitely. So I go back and there's Wild Woman and Cody Bates. I tell them what's happened. I give Cody the money to bail him out. And then they're all disgraced by his behavior because it's such a serious operation. And then he walks in. Wild Man just walks in. Why the fuck did you leave me there? <laughs> I said, please, there's police on both sides of the road. You promised you weren't gonna do anything violent. We've got all these pills coming in. Do you want me to get arrested? Oh no, those cops, I'm all good with them. I'm fucking giving them, giving them LSD. Fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> so that's, that's what he was like, yeah. Wow. Skinner. So Skinner, mm. um, obviously went to the cops. Skinner's he, been to the cops. He then sort of turned. Yeah. And then what happened after that? So Skinner's gone to the cops. They've got nine other witness statements against me. Some of those are from the Gravanos. The New Mexican Mafia guys get arrested first. G-Dog asked me to take him home one day to his brother's. Get to his brother's neighborhood. It's completely blacked out. There are guys on the street guiding the traffic with like saber ones, like out of fucking Darth Vader shit, light ones. And um, we pull up at the house and they're all getting taken out by a federal SWAT team. And that was the night I saw them all over the news, their mugshots, and that's when it said New Mexican Mafia explained who they were. So that was the first. Then they went after Sammy the Bull, Gravano's organization. I was like, thanks, cops. Got rid of the competition. Really appreciate that. But, Did um, you write my thank you card? Or? I should have done. <laughs> but arrogance comes before a fall. Right, right. Um, and I'd met another woman now, fallen in love. She was terrified of my mates. I was still sneaking off at the weekend, now getting high with Wildman and G-Dog, even though I, she taught me to stop in the importation. So I stopped the importation a year before they came. I was naive to the statute of limitations. I thought they had to catch you with the drugs. Right. And then on May 16th, 2002, I was up very early in the morning, back to looking at the stock market and stuff, and there was a knock on the door. Bam, 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 bam. Tempe, please, we've got a warrant. I don't know if it's cops or someone pretending to the cops come to rob me. So I jump up, look through the people, it's blacked out. Go through the window, entire complex is surrounded. Go through to the bedroom, talk to my girlfriend. What should we do? Better let him in. So we're walking through the living room and then just boom. Door flies off the hinges, bounces against the wall. And have you been swatted? Never. They all, they come in military style and you can just see their eyes behind the visas and they're looking at you. And it's like time slows down a bit and you can see in their eyes one false move and you're fucking dead. Yeah. So you drop like that. Hands above your heads, get on the ground now, don't effing move. The cop, one of the lead detectives who I learned was my nemesis, just hoists me up. He's like English Sean, he's got his face in my face. You're a big name from the rave scene, we finally fucking got you, ah, all this shit. And um, I start yelling at my girlfriend, I'm exercising my right to remain silent, love. 
IMAX over and over again. I just keep saying that. And they're like, you shut the fuck up, shut the fuck up. And they end up like rushing me down the stairs and put me in a cop car outside. But everyone who worked for me had legal benefits. They all knew, keep your mouth shut, um, exercise your right to remain silent, ask for a lawyer, we will get you a lawyer, we will provide your bail. Very early on when I was going to the New Mexican Mafia house that had the rocket pod grenade launcher in it, they said to me, Sean, if you ever get pulled up leaving, leaving here, tell the cops if they ask you to search the vehicle that you're in a hurry and you do not want your vehicle searched. They have to have probable cause. They said if it ever gets too heavy, call this lawyer. And that was the lawyer my family remembered. Was that Saul? <laughs> Saul was the lawyer we were using earlier. This was the top, this was the top guy right, for right, the New right. Mexican Mafia. Wow. He was so high that the prosecutor said, where's your New Mexican Mafia tattoo to him one day in court? Wow. Yeah, um, but he cost an arm and a leg. All my money was seized. And my parents remortgaged the house, God bless them, to, to, to afford that lawyer. Otherwise, so, so, I'd still be in prison. So the... the so, so you, you got arrested. Yeah. Um, what did they charge you with? Conspiracy, criminal enterprise, crime syndicate, using electronic devices to facilitate drug transactions, money laundering. I think I had about a dozen. The main, the main charge was conspiracy, right. and that was $750,000 bail bond. And then they had crimes running the crime syndicate So as people well. watching this in, in the UK... Yeah. Um, when you said bail bond, what, can you explain what that means? All right, so if you've got 750,000 cash and they arrest you and that's your bond, your bail, someone can come to the jail, post that as collateral. So they, they actually physically give it to them yeah. or bank transfer or whatever, yeah. write them a check, and then they let you out. They let you out, yeah. But we, I didn't have it. They seized all my money. I flew people from England and opened accounts in the names, bank accounts, stock market accounts, credit accounts, rented houses, cars in the names. But the cops... I thought I was outsmarting the cops. The cops put a netbush Trojan horse in my computer, showed right. them everything. So when I was arrested, they seized everything. What? What? What is a, a netbush? A netbush Trojan horse. Oh, a netbush Trojan yeah, horse. Yeah. Netbush Trojan horse. Yeah. And, and what? Yeah. What? What does that do? Um, it's a virus. Wow. Yeah. This was very early on before I understood tech properly. So they they were way ahead of us. The Department of uh, Justice had done that and put it in my computer. I should have known, Terry, because when I was logging off my computer, it was saying to me, are you sure you want to shut me down? Others are using me right now. Right. But I was a bit naive to stuff. And I said it to my mate, Seth, what does this mean? He's like, yeah, they're watching you. But I just thought he was paranoid because he'd done too much math. Right. <laughs> so you had these 12 charges. Mm. And what was you looking at t prison time then? So they also... Would if you got... Guilty on all of them and, you know, you were bang to rights. All right, so with the 12 charges, they also classified me as a serious drug offender status, which is 25 to life. So if I went to trial and lost on that first indictment, uh, if they stack the charges, um, let's just say there was 10 charges, that's 100 years if they stack them, plus 25 to life on serious drug offender status. But what they tried to do was break us all down, get us snitching against each other. Sammy the Bull's case, 57 people have been arrested and they all snitched. Wow. So they thought all oh, my guys were going to do that. But Sammy the Bulls guys were just in Arizona and out. We'd been building bonds with these local people for years. And they were a lot of them were terrified of wild man and wild woman. So out of over a hundred people who were eventually arrested, only four cooperated. Wow. And I was fighting the case for 26 months. Wow. So they tried were trying to break me down. They pulled out every dirty trick in the book. 
they re-indicted me a year later and doubled my charges to, to, two do, uh, to 20 something, 24 charges. Wow. Doubled my bail to 1.5 million. Charged my girlfriend with one prescription pill found in our house that didn't have a written prescription next to it, which is classics felony. Co-defendants can't visit co-defendants because she was my lifeline. She was visiting me three times a week to stop her from visiting me. Every nasty, dirty trick in the book they, they pulled on us. Yeah. Wow. And then you, you had your day in court. I take it you was in remand. You see, was in twenty six months. Twenty six months, and then yeah. and then you you had your day in court. Yeah. And no, what? every month I was in court. It was right. going on for twenty six months. Got it. So you go in court, then you come out, then you go back in. Every month I go in court. I won't get to say anything. I never had a day in court as per se. Right. Prosecutor would get up and say I was the antichrist. My lawyer would get up and say I was a child protege stock market guy gone wrong, a uh, good guy. Neither of them were true. This is how I learned that court is complete bollocks and theatre. And whoever's got the most money puts on the best show. Right. And we had a, a lot of money, but we didn't have as much money as the state. But what they do is they grind you down into signing what's called a plea bargain. 98% of the prisoners sign a plea bargain, which is not snitching. It's just you get up in front of the judge and admit guilt for certain crimes to avoid going to trial, which costs the state money. So if, if there was 12, 12 charges, yeah. um, they would say to you, Sean, if you say you'll get on these two, we'll get rid of the other 10. Yeah, they're like used car sales people. Right, right, right. Yeah. We're starting out here, but we're, you're facing 200. But if you sign today, we'll give you this nice, you know, uh, nine and a half years. You only have to serve six, first time non-violent drug offender, but you will have to agree to be banned for life from America. Um, and that was how it played out in the end. Right. Yeah. So what did you actually plead guilty for or sign up to? So the class two felonies were dropped and I pled guilty to money laundering, use of an electronic device to facilitate a drug transaction. I think there might have been two of them. And one of them was actually a weed transaction and I never dealt weed. I told all my workers, if you're on a mission, never ever go around weed because it takes specially trained beagles to sniff ecstasy. And one of them went to France, Cody Bates, and he brought a guy in. And this is something that I read in your book where a guy came into your criminal activity who wasn't a criminal and got in trouble right away. Can't remember which story it was. This was an, an example of that. They went to France with instructions to get 10, 20,000 pills through France to Holland. And Cody Bates brought in his mate, who's never ever done anything, any crime in his entire life. And because they went to Holland, and this guy had never been out of the country before, and it was his birthday, he bought him some kind bud, some hydro. And he thought, right, I've got to show my mates in America this. They get to a checkpoint in France with the tens of thousands of pills, and the sniffer dog just walks right up to him, puts his paw on him like that. He's busted. Cody Bates, who was one of my right-hand guys, sees this, goes to the toilets and flushes all of his shit, and he got through. So, like I said, everybody had benefits. So the guy who's the, the innocent guy who got busted, we got him a lawyer, and the best we could get him was think, like three years in a French prison, and he could speak French by the time he got out. Wow. Yeah. But my point here it is... It wasn't always, did. <laughs> <laughs> no, education opportunity. But you, but you got a nine-and-a-half-year sentence. Yeah. Uh, but you did six. Did six, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. And, and then when you come out, mm -hmm. was it literally get your stuff, fuck off, don't come back to America, and then you sort of end up back in England? Yeah. So 
I got put into a deportation. So I'm, I'm Arizona State Prison. First off, I'm 26 months in Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail system. Then I'm Arizona Department of Corrections. Then I'm in federal deportation. They can't tell you when you're going to get released for security purposes. So it's just me and all Mexicans. So what happens is I get, um, I get told to roll up. We're on our way. Have you seen that movie, Connor? Yeah, of course. So I'm on Connor then. And it's just me and Mexicans. <laughs> By now, I, I picked up some Spanish. Right. And I'm translating from the Mexicans with these redneck guards. So on Connor, we're all shackled. You can't even get up to take a piss. All these air marshals are strapped and, and stood up and, and just looking at us. And they're, they're, they're like, you know, don't fuck around. And the Conair plane is going over Arizona and California, just dropping off and picking up Mexicans like they're creating work for themselves, which I later learned out they were. Get to LA jail, and I'm in this LA jail, and it's very late at night, because these holding cells, things can drag. And there's a, there's, um, there's a couple of guys telling stories. There's a guy who was going 150 miles an hour, Gizmondo, I think was his company, he was an East European mafia guy, and he's going 150 plus miles an hour in this 300,000, half a million pounds sports car and wrapped it into a fucking lamppost or something. He was all over the news. People can Google this. Just can't remember his name. I hit it off of him. He was really nice. But he, most people like, weren't as talkative as the Argentinian. Right. So it's like 2, 3 in the morning. The Argentinian's just giving it this. You know, I've got this woman, my wife. She's so loving. Uh, every day I wake up, she gives me a blowy. And when we cross the road and see homeless people, she makes sure we give them money. And she's waiting for me at the airport right now in Argentina. I've not seen her for years. And he was just going on and on and on and on about how excited he was um, with these stories. <laughs> and um, what happens is I get called out the next day with him to go to the plane. Right. Have you been to LA? Yeah, of course. Traffic can get messed up in LA, right. can't it? Right. So we're going to get our flights now in the, the van, the prison van and we'll get stuck in LA traffic. And I'm noticing like the driver, the guard, he's, he's starting to get a bit twitchy and he's looking at us and stuff like he's gonna tell us something. And um, he does tell us something. He says, because of the traffic, we're gonna have to go back to the jail. You've missed your flights. So you're gonna have to be rescheduled. So I'm thinking, we're just gonna get put on the next flight. And the Argentinian just starts rocking in the chair. Rescheduled! Rescheduled! Oh no! Rescheduled! I'm like, what's the matter? We'll just, surely we'll just, you don't know what reschedule means! We've got to go back to the jail and back to the deportation, federal deportation facility, and the whole process of booking a flight, which takes weeks, has got to start again. So all the way back, he's going ape shit in this van. And I'm, I'm pretty depressed, but I'm not as expressive as him. <laughs> we get back, well, by the time we get back to the jail, he gets out, and he starts screaming, will someone give me a cigarette, will someone give me a cigarette? And they just dragged him away and put him in one of those glass cubicles because he's gone mad. <laughs> so they put me back in the cell, and I'm thinking, oh shit man, rescheduled. This is a bummer. But I'm still not sure what it's gonna entail properly. Maybe this guy's, you know, it's not as bad as this guy made out. And I hear my name again, get, gets called a, a couple hours in. And they come and they say, look, some, either my flight was delayed or something, or there was something, we can get you to your flight. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> imagine like you've been inside for almost six years and you think you're going home and you're not going home, you're going home again. Fucking woo. So I was just bouncing off the seat now in the van. We get to the, the um, where the plane is parked and I, I tell him I've got to take a piss. And he's like, you're not gonna do anything funny, blah, blah, blah. So we go in somewhere I can piss. And um, he has to watch me piss. That's, that's like the protocol. And then he handcuffs me to a bar in the toilet while he pisses himself. And then we come back out and he says, we're gonna put you on the plane first so you don't scare any of the passengers. Uh, with you be, just being out of prison and stuff, your handcuffs on that. Um, there's a London cabin crew on the stairs waiting for me. And I hear this friendly Cockney accent. And it was the first time anyone had talked to me, like I wasn't a number, I wasn't an animal. And I was so sensitive to that. It just like warmed the cockles of my heart. And the cuffs were taken off me and I got put on the plane and then all the passengers are getting on. I can smell like the women's perfume and things like that. I've been around sweaty, hurry men for the past six years. But I made a mistake because I was a bit institutionalized. So I said to a female member of the cabin crew when all the passengers were on, um, is it okay if I can go to the toilet? Because I was so used to being, a, I had to ask. And she's like, no, you don't need to ask, you know, it's okay, the toilet's just there. And people looking at me like it was a bit crazy. So I was starting to stink as well. So I had a little bird bath in, in the toilet and freshened myself up. Been in transportation for days. Can't remember what the movies were on the plane, but I was just on a, I was on a high and I have not slept for days. When, when, you, was, when you was in the prison, when you yeah. first went into the jail there, I'm, I, I don't know what the browser are like in England compared to America, mm. but um, being, being that you haven't been to jail before, yeah, what was that like? I mean, was it literally like, did you think, what the fuck have I done? Or am I going to get through this? Or what was your... Yeah, so Hard Time, my life story is a trilogy. Hard Time, the one I gave you, the audio book is over 10 hours long. That's just the jail. Wow. So the jail stuff, uh, what time are we at now? And um, we're at almost six now there's a lot of jail stuff to go over wow do you want me to, to I'll, tell, I'll tell you what we should do part two i think we've got to do part two <laughs> yeah sure, yeah right yeah, but yeah. but but just just what was your you know could, because a lot of people always sort of mm. wonder you know mm. if they went to jail would they be able to cope with it and i was shitting myself right like i said i'm not a gangster um wild man was arrested with me Thank God, RIP wild man. He's a good man to get arrested with. I'll give you a story then of us entering the jail. So we've all been swatted, whatever. We've all been sharing our stories in the van. First uh, group of co-defendants is 13 people. They said these are the heads of the crime syndicate. We get to the Madison Street Jail, which is run by Sheriff Joe Arpaio, America's toughest sheriff. Now, in the intake area, you've got the new arrestees going in, queuing up. So you've got gangbangers, homeless, drunks, people have been tased, people have been in fights, a rowdy bunch of people. My. There's some females and they look like sex workers or something like that. So they, they mix the, the, the men and the women no, in No, this is oh. just people queuing up to get in. Got it. Yeah, yeah. So there's some sex workers there with cops protecting them, but all the men are like hassling, like hassling the, the women. Now in our van, it's half women. So I'm wild woman, I'm wild man. So our women get off first. There's like steps, there's like a redneck cop. He's yelling at everyone to get, get, off, get down the steps. And as the women get out, 
all the men who are waiting to go in, heckling the, the women waiting to go in, turn around and start screaming stuff, yelling at our women, like, get your tits out, things like that. Yeah, whatever, you know, the American equivalent is. And um, wild woman gets out. And I can see she's not happy. And she's psychopathic. She's got something wrong with her, one of her glands that can cause her to go psychopathic, you know, within seconds. While man's watching this, and I see the eyebrow go up. <laughs> Completely calm face, but eyebrow goes up. So I know something's gonna happen. So the guard's yelling at us to get down the steps. Now at this point in time, while man's been on a crack spree, he's got like a Vikings, he kind of looking beard. <laughs> and he's a big fella. And he gets onto the top of the step and just stops. And the guard's yelling, get the fuck down. And he raises his Vikings beard. He's all ch you know, chained up like this. You lot, disrespecting our women. I'm gonna be in there with all of you in a fucking minute. And if you don't shut up, I'll have the lot of you. And then just to add a bit of emphasis, he leans his head back and goes, <laughs> You think I fucking won't? <laughs> and veins are popping out, veins are popping out of his head. I bet people would be like, maybe we sharp now. <laughs> don't upset the big man. Yeah, so they shut up. Yeah. yeah. So, so obviously, because the prison thing, like you said, there was yeah. such a big chunk on that. Yeah. I think we we will save that for part two. It's a little teaser. But, but you get back to the UK. Yeah. What's the first thing you do? All right. Um, if you video edited, please, please don't say that you went out and caught crack, Mev. <laughs> I, I, Terry, I learned my lesson. Believe me. I mean, that's the um, other thing. Do you know something? What's been good about. Uh, doing this podcast when we've been talking to anybody that's been uh, on that criminal path and they've done any serious time, they all come out and they all say, they don't want to go back. If anything, you know, they wish they could change. Nobody's been on here and gone, yeah, I'd do it again. I love going to jail. You know, everyone's been sort of remorseful. Is that your your experience as well? Yeah, but it wasn't wild, man. He said he'd do it all over again. He had no regrets. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shame he's, he's not here to, to talk about it, but, yeah, but, yeah. but, but, but most people. Most, most sensible most people. people, yeah. yeah. Um, so if your video editor wants to put a clip in of me at Gatwick or Heathrow where I get deported to, I'll send it to you. Because I'm all stubbled out, bug-eyed, shell-shocked looking. You can see I've been through some shit. Right. And um, my mum, dad, sister... They're all giving me a hug. My mum's crying, my sister's crying. Right. There's a little clip of us leaving the airport where my sister busts out her phone and explains what texting is. <laughs> wow. They take me straight for Indian food. Right. I ordered chicken tikka masala, which was my former favorite. Right. I got the gag reflex and almost threw up because of the mystery meat slop in Sheriff Joe Pyre's jail that occasionally had a dead rat in it. it looked wow. like We called it Red Death. It looked... So I converted to the Hindu religion in the jail because right. under freedom of religious expression, you under the constitution, you can get a religious diet, vegetarian. Right. Tried to play the system. Anyway, tried chicken tikka masala, got the gag reflex. To this day, I've stayed vegetarian. Went to my sister's house, did a few interviews. Um, this is what got me the school's talks was because I did an interview with Eddie Murr at the BBC. 
a Harley Street drug counselor heard it, shout out to Anthony, and he said, I want this lad to go and speak in schools. And you heard my stories about the cockroaches, the gangs, the violence and all that stuff. I want him to go and tell these stories to kids in school so they won't get involved in drugs and crime. Amazing. But I lived at my mum's house for a year, my parents' house in Widnes, and I couldn't, like I was offered the opportunity to speak in schools, but I, I couldn't do it because my head wasn't right. Right. I had to decompress, and it took about a year at my parents' house before I moved down south. I went from living in my parents' garage, which was about the size of a, a jail cell, to living in my mate's bedroom for 10 years, which was the size of a jail cell. Um, but I diligently stayed on the computer and wrote my books and built up my social media. Amazing. We started a blog when I was in the jail. That was in 2004. And the YouTube channel started in 2007. And since what, what drew you to the YouTube channel? Because <clears throat> was it was it just like a natural progression from blogging? You're, you're writing stuff, now you want to show people. Yeah, so the blog was in, I was in the Maximum Security Madison Street Jail 2004. And I was writing home about the cockroaches, the murders, the gangs, murdering people, the guards murdering people, they murdered a blind prisoner, they murdered mentally ill prisoners. People can Google Brian Crenshaw, Scott Norberg, people, you know. And um, in the letters I was writing home, my family members were fascinated. And we thought, my dad read a book called By Salem Pax, the Baghdad Blogger. It was when blogs were just first getting in the news. And my dad was like, well, why don't we start a blog? And mum was like, no, because of the guards murdering the prisoners, something could happen to Sean, we can't <laughs> do that. Especially if you say anything bad about the rat soup or the guard being exactly. this, that and the other, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, he's fell down the stairs. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So my mom didn't want to do it. My dad, it was his idea. And I said, look, I want to do it, but we'll do it under a fake name, John. John's Jail Journal, J-O-N, John Irish for Sean. And also, I couldn't put the things in the mail because the guards can open your mail. So we recruited my aunt, my dad's sister, and God bless her, she's dead now too, my aunt Anne. She would come and visit me in Max Security. Now in Max Security, you're sat at a table, but there's a plexiglass screen, you know, like Silence of the Lambs, Clary Stalling meets Hannibal Lecter. And I'm on a phone and I'm handcuffed to a table. So I couldn't pass things to her, but I hid what I wrote in legal paperwork letters. And the, the guard, I would, he would give my property to my aunt at the end of the visit. So she smuggled them out of the jail, put them online as, as uh, it's emailed them to my parents, sorry, who put them online as John's Jail Journal. It's also up to this day, if you want to check it out, my journey is documented, timestamped. Wow. What I wrote home back, way from back then. And your pseudonym was what, John? John, J-O-N. So John's Jail Journal is the blog. John Jail's Journal. So right. I get out in 2007. My dad's already started a YouTube channel. He did, um, his first video was him in a fake queen band in Tenerife. <laughs> so I hijacked. <laughs> I stole was he his... Freddie Mercury or was he Brian <laughs> I May? I can't remember. Right, I can't right. remember. <laughs> I think Brian. Yeah, so I, I stole his channel and started putting up prison survival advice videos, how to survive Sheriff Joe Pyro's jail, etc. Um, but the frequency of the videos dramatically increased about five or six years ago when I was inspired to go up full on into podcasting. And that was after my mate True Joe me, I had a shout out to him, I'd be on his podcast. And also I started to get a lot of views from um, supporting the guys, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, who were featured in documentary Making a Murder, about which I wrote a book as well. Yeah. Speaking in the schools was my main job and then the books and then the YouTube, but it all reversed to the point now where 
YouTube has taken over my life. I've got 20 people working on the channel. I've got six co-hosts. Wow. I've got one of my co-hosts pregnant. We just had a baby. Congratulations. <laughs> well, do you know what you're having? Well, no, we just had him. He's, he's, he's uh, Britain's biggest baby. Wow. He's two months old and he's already in size nine months close. Shout out to Ziggy and Jen. Has Ziggy got hair? Ziggy was born with her, but right. so was I, little blonde angel. Do you know what's funny? Like some yeah. kids are born with hair, like mad hair or yeah. no hair. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, so I was in witness for the first year, living in my mate's bedroom for 10 years. Just building it all up, you know, slow yeah. and steady progress. Wrote 16 books. The podcast channel, you'd say, yeah. really from 2017 onwards, that's when you it really sort of took off for you. Yeah, that's when my main focus became podcasting. Right. was about six years ago. Yeah. And um, it, it, it took a while because it was supported by the books. But the thing is, it wasn't a thing then. It's a thing now, isn't it? You know, yeah. I think probably... I think when COVID happened, that's when mm. it became really big because I think lots of people were, were, were going out on walks, they were going to the gym, but they didn't listen, want to listen to music or listen to stories. Yes. And, it, and obviously, you know, with something like a podcast, I don't know if you find this, but people like listening to it, but also like watching it. Definitely. Um, so, you know, I think doing both is a, yeah. is, is a good thing. A lot um, of people who watch things on YouTube like to listen to audiobooks. Like I listened to your audiobook, which was brilliant. And... Um, during COVID, the, our views did increase dramatically. But I also got in trouble because I was reporting on the Epstein case and I lost my channel twice over that. So I had a few setbacks along the way as well. Do you, do you know something now? I think, um, I think the, the problem, obviously, I think the, 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 the media, mm. and I'm talking about the, the national media, that, that they obviously can uh, report on things but then I think with, with the social media platforms, if people voice an opinion on some of these things, if, it, if, it's, if they think you're either anti it or, you know, you're bringing something out that they don't really want brought out, then obviously it can cause, cause issues. And also, the world is obviously a much more sensitive place now. So people do tend to say, oh, I'm offended by this because of X, Y, Z. And then if somebody looks at it and goes, actually, yeah, that is offensive. And then, like you said, then you, you, you can have a problem. But... Um, but you've had, t you said two setbacks. I had two terminations. I've had other setbacks, but we're living in an algorithmic gulag, basically, whereby YouTube tightens its community guidelines every month. Right. So depending upon the amount... It's on top of it, basically, yeah. They've got AI watching everything we've said in this podcast, and you're getting a score. And if you, we've said certain words, AI is going to decide not to share that podcast as much as if we hadn't said those words. Wow. Or to demonetize it completely or partially or not show it at all, completely shadow ban it. So how'd you get around that then? You've got to study YouTube's community guidelines, <laughs> which are an absolute nightmare. <laughs> so all the people who've got working for me, if they like, they might ask me a question and I'll copy and paste that part of YouTube community guidelines. Because we really, we really enjoyed expanding away from, you know, interviewing a diverse range of people and things like dominatrices and stuff like that. We interviewed a few of them. YouTube hates that stuff. Right. And we really got penalized for that. Swearing, sexual content, anything that goes against um, mainstream pandemic stuff, let's just say. Um, well, I think, I think at the end of the day, you know, there's people, um, you know, on both sides that have got something to say. And, and I think unless you're actually in that region and you fully understand what's going on it's very hard to comment on it and the thing is as well if you do comment on it 
people say, what the fuck do you know? And also, you know, you do tend to upset people and it's, it's, it's just the world we're in, you know? Yeah. So I think now you, you have to, uh, I think you're allowed to have an opinion and you're allowed to talk about stuff. But I think if you promote something that people don't like, then obviously you get in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's why I started Rumble Channel. Um, right. But on the other side of that, I want to say that I'm completely blessed yeah. to have the opportunity that YouTube has provided. Yeah, YouTube. I've met so many wonderful YouTube people. Brilliant. I mean, I've not, I've, I'm, I'm a newbie to, to YouTube. We've only been on there. Uh, I think we're, this, yeah, we're, we're up to, we're six and a half weeks in to mm. our YouTube channel. And uh, we've, we've um, I, I, I always did, I set up a YouTube channel for myself. But I never really got my head around it, and, uh, uh, and and I'm starting to understand it more now. But yeah, um, and and I've I think I've grown to love the fact that anybody anywhere in the world mm. can watch. So you you have a platform to discuss stuff to meet people, and as I said, Sean, you know I'm I'm glad you come on um, a podcast because obviously I've seen what you've done, yeah, and admired your journey, and uh, mm. you know you. obviously I'm I'm. I refer to myself as the Podfather, <laughs> but maybe um, at one point, you know, I'll, I'll be I'll be the the Godfather. You can be the the, the one above the Godfather. But um, I've been inspired by what you've done, and I oh, and I, and that, I think uh, thank you. And I think you know, for, for me, I've, I've it's like when I make a film, when I'm in a movie, whatever I'm doing, right? Mm. I always, you know, if if you were making a movie or we're working together, I want you to win. Do you know yeah, what I mean? I'm yes. not, I'm not, there's a lot of people who have this, mm. oh, you know, we're in competition. We're not in competition. Everybody yeah. does. If you're, if I was trying to do exactly what you were doing, mm. then obviously I'm trying to be you, but mm. obviously we're all doing our own thing. Yeah. And I think obviously the world is 7 billion people in the world. So there's enough people to go around. <laughs> exactly. And, and in America, there's more of that success. Everyone wants everyone to be successful. Absolutely. In the UK, there's, there's a bit, not, there's a bit of a different attitude. But I'm blessed. We've interviewed over a thousand people. Some of those I'm really good friends Is with. Is that how now. many videos you've done? A thousand? We've done thousands of videos. Wow. Thousands. But you've interviewed a thousand I've people. interviewed over a thousand people over wow. the years. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we have a weekly show called I've, only, I've only done seven. <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 do, we do seven a week just in our weekly live stream, which is called Atwood Unleashed on a Wednesday night. Wow. We have seven plus guests, 30 minute slots. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, and, and the podcasts. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of, of long form podcasts as well. Amazing. Yeah. And what's your what do you average? Is it an hour and a half, two hours each one? We've had some that have been like five hours. <laughs> I, I, I like to, I like to go like two or three hours usually. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Two hours is all right. If I go if I'm below two hours, I've usually got a bad taste in my mouth. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's it's getting um the guests who can speak at length. My ideal guest, I don't say anything. Right. People like David Icke, uh, we've had on, he'll speak for 40 minutes and I won't say anything. Did he think you was a, a reptile or was he? Not me, the royal family. Right, okay. <laughs> now I know he's got a thing about that, hasn't he? he yeah. He does. Uh, yeah. He does. I mean, I, I've, I've read a couple of his books and I, I think with, with David Icke, I was interested mm. in, you know, what he said. And uh, lots of people think, think he's a crank, a lot of people think he's nuts. Mm. But some of the stuff he has said, has come true and some of the stuff Jimmy he has Savile. said well there you go yeah so and and uh, you know I'm, I, I, what I don't get about him yeah is there's like millions of documentaries there's a TV series about him mm -hmm. and it's sort of like why are we celebrating this guy mm -hmm. I mean you know he should have been arrested and banged up you know uh, I always thought there was something 
odd about him. Do you know what I mean? But We've done a four-hour documentary on Savile, and I've just got a book about to come out about him called Untouchable Jimmy Savile. I thought you'd have called it Now One Long Land Nolan. How's <laughs> <laughs> about that then? <laughs> um, he had a weekly luncheon for Leeds Police, who were predominantly Freemasons. Right. And if there was a complaint about him that came in anywhere in the country, the protocol back then was it goes to his jurisdiction, Leeds Police, and there was a cop who took the complaints, who went to his lunch club, and the complaints never saw the light of day. Wow. And he had access to Charles, Di, Thatcher, top royals, top politicians, thing the, is Pope, though, the, the Pope. The thing is, though, he, you know, looking at it from an outsider's perspective, even though I always thought it was odd, mm. right, um, you know, it was like he did Jim will fix it for the kids. He wanted to make their dreams come true. Yeah. He did a lot for charity. You know, mm. he was the guy that was everybody's mate. He was all like a bit. Mm. And, and like w when you watch some of them top of the pop videos and some of the stuff now, you like go, how did he get away with that? Did you want to see the one where he puts his the girl's Yeah, and I remember like at the time, it was all like, oh, Jimmy's such a character. Look at Jimmy. Because yeah. oh. everyone thought he was just being a boy. But yeah. when you look at it now with a context, you mm. actually go, wow, it was on show what he was doing, you know? Mm. It wasn't even subtle, right? But, you know. Benny Hill morality. Yeah. Yeah. Was, ben was Benny Hill bad as well? Well, if you watch Benny Hill back then, it was dirty old men chasing fit women in stockings and suspenders through fields, wasn't it? What kind of, what, would they show that now? No. But what I'm saying is no. that was setting the precedent, wasn't it, for people? They were saying women are pieces of meat who you just chase through fields in lingerie, basically. Right. So that's how Savile could get away with it because that was the morality back then, I wow. think. Wow. Yeah. Mad world we live in. Isn't we're it? living in. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sean, I've really enjoyed having you on the show. Cheers, Terry. Thank you so much for coming yeah, on. Yeah. And listen, we have got to do a part two. Definitely. And I think maybe the part two is the prison. Yeah, right, yeah. Because the prison is, I mean, 10 hours. I've got 10 wow. plus hours. Uh, wow. Prison riot stories. and So there's the, there's the jail. That's 10 hours. You're going to get everybody Sheriff excited. Everyone's going to get excited now. They're going to be like, when's part two? When's part two? Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail, 26 months. That was the most hell to skeletal environment. Highest, the jail with the highest rate of death in America. You go in, Erie and Brotherhood decide who lives and dies. Right away, they tried to kill a chomo. Uh, left him with, with yellow stuff coming out of his skull. Looks like he was dead. There's a race riot in there. Um, I mean, with the cockroaches and, and the, the brown recluse spiders, that it, it goes down to the bone, causes a volcano lesion. Um, on and on, that, that's just the jail. Then there's the prison, the Arizona Department of Corrections, which is the next section, which there's another 10 hours on my book, Prison Time. And we're in, in that one, we've got, we've got um, riots in that one. Oh, shank, people with shanks. Um, prison gang rapes and beheading stories. The story of the rape class. Prison rape is so common, you have to go to a rape class to get taught how not to get raped. There's a, I ended up getting under the wing of a Bonanno crime family associate, two Tonys, left the dead bodies of rival gangsters from Arizona to Alaska. Um, multiple homicide murder doing 140 plus years. He told me his life story in there. Um, there's just so much, it's endless. It's right, endless. So that is the trailer <laughs> for Sean Atwood, part two. I think we call it Prison Tales. <laughs> yes. But Sean, thank you so much for coming. Oh, on. we always end with a hug, Terry. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah. Cheers. Thanks for tuning into the Criminal Connection podcast. 
Sean Atwood, what a guest. I'm absolutely flabbergasted by his stories. Um, make sure you check out his podcast, his YouTube channel, and make sure you read his books. Make sure you tune in next week for another interesting guest, exciting guest, with Heavy Stone, The Criminal Connection. We'll see you next week.